Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I am David coming at you live from Copenhagen. And uh, I'm very, very excited to bring on this week's guest. Uh, he is, uh, I don't really know how I would say this, but you are basically like uh, the resident statistician of chess Twitter, I would say, probably. You know, you're doing doing all the big work, all the statistical analysis for top tournaments. So uh, please uh, join me in giving a warm welcome to uh, Chess by the Numbers. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. And uh, very glad to have you. Um, first of all, 64 Chess Podcast is, of course, sponsored by Aim Chess. You can use code David30 to get 30% off your first month with Aim Chess. And uh, while we are talking about statistical analysis and whatnot this week, um, you can use statistical tools to improve your game with Aim Chess um, just by doing a simple diagnosis of your game history by putting in, you know, whether you're on Lee Chess or on chess.com, you put in your account and it basically can tell you all this nice fancy data about what openings are working for you, what work is, what's not working for you, and even stuff like, you know, what day of the week are you best. So check out Aim Chess, use code David30 to get 30% off your first month with them. And I thank them for sponsoring this episode. Now, with that being said, um, you know, originally what I had planned for this episode was kind of to talk to you about, you know, how you work and like, what are the, some of the projects you're doing and your thoughts on the World Chess Championship. And, you know, that's great and all, but um, there is this, uh, this kid from... Uh, Iran, who's currently playing for France. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Ali Reza Faruja. Um, is that? Yeah. Yeah, who is that? And, uh, you know, he's played uh, 20 games in, in the last three weeks. Um, I think his record is something like this guy 13 from, wins, six draws, six draws and one, one loss. loss. For a 80% rating. score, 2908 performance rating. With, uh, you know, a... Uh, uh, He's gained uh, in this calendar month. He's gained 33.8 rating points, which puts him uh, up seven spots in the world ranking, um, right behind Magnus Carlsen, um, who of course is a 50 elo uh, peak above him. But he is only 18 years old, and he only started playing chess, I think, in 2012 or 2013. Uh, he actually, he in his own words, he started a bit late. So we look at this. Um, you know, we have uh, someone who really seems like is the heir to the world championship throne. Um, I'm kind of curious, first of all, like um, as a chess fan, just what you kind of think about, about, you know, this, this rise to, uh, you, know, you know, basically to the, the top of the top. Not that he wasn't there already. He was always pretty close, but I think he's really taking like that important step. Like you said, 2,900 performance rating is nothing to sneeze at, especially, you know, over one tournament, it's one thing. Over two tournaments, that is really special. Um, so I guess let's start there. Like, what, what kind of what what's your take on on this uh, Ferruja climb? So first things first, I just have to acknowledge that while I try to be as objective and impartial as possible in all of my analysis, Ferruja is my favorite player. I am a chess fan. I do have favorites, and uh, Ferruja is it for me. So it's hard not to just be completely effusive, but it's easy this month because he's earned it. Right. Um, uh, I'll also throw in that specifically in the nine games of the European Team Championship, he his performance rating was over 3,000 as he led France to a tie for first place. I think tie breaks are still unclear at the time we're recording this. Um, yeah, so uh, as far as the rise, I'm going to say one of the reasons that I love following Ferruja and it's been so great to see him is that I wrote about him as the second article I ever published on my blog in February of 2015. Wow. 
which was when he was still 11 years old. Um, I didn't write that he was a future world champion contender. <laughs> I did not write that he was going to be the youngest 2800 of all time. But he was an 11 year old kid who had, at the time, the 11th highest rating ever at his age. And because he was from Iran and that made him a little more of a curiosity, I picked him as the second person to write about when I started out with my whole Prodigy Watch feature. So I've been following him for a very long time. Uh, most people, if I think the earliest he caught a lot of attention was later that year when he won the Iranian National Championship, but and then had started having some good international results and shooting up the rankings. But yeah, I've been following him for a very long time. I'm a huge fan, and it's just incredibly wonderful to see what he's done this month. Um, it's it feels like the culmination of so much promise and he's been for a couple years now doing things that are really only comparable to what Magnus did at the same age and but the biggest thing that Magnus did that no one before him had or that no one since has as well the difference between Magnus and someone like Wei Yi for example who I wrote about a lot uh, a bunch of years ago was that Magnus kept it up all the way to that 2800 rating, all the way to, for him, the world number one ranking. Whereas most other prodigies, even if they're along Magnus's trajectory at 15, 16 years old, they somewhere fade off. And what Ferugia showed this month is that he's ready to do the same thing Magnus did. And here he is now breaking the record, breaking Magnus's record for youngest 2800 rating of all time assuming he doesn't play anything else this month and that this rating that he has today is going to go ahead and be published on December 1st, which seems to be the case. Pretty likely. Yeah. Pretty, very likely, I think. So youngest 2800 of all time, not number one, but Magnus didn't have a 2850 defending world champion to try to catch when he was yeah, turning when he was 18, 18, when he was 18. Right. So it's, it's not com quite comparable. And Ferugia's performance rating is showing that he might not be done gaining rating points yet if he keeps playing like this. So I don't know where it's going to go from here, but I know we get to see him in the next candidates tournament. And yeah, it's just it's really exciting. It's really exciting. So, you know, uh, you, you said you wrote about uh, Ferugia uh, some seven years ago. And uh, you said that at the time you didn't write that he was necessarily a uh, like a World Test Championship challenger or something. But what was so intriguing about Ferugia back then? So what really caught my eye at that point was um, that he was from Iran, which just has such minimal chess history and culture in terms of modern professional chess. Um, obviously, chess originated in Persia, but as far as modern professional level chess, there's very little history of grandmasters and especially top competitive grandmasters internationally coming from there. So I had just created my first, my initial database of prodigy rankings that I was using to launch my blog and this whole concept of my prodigy watch feature. And so I was just going through the list of all the kids that showed up on the list. And because he was from Iran, that caught my eye and I picked him and Sam Sevian as the two as the two that I did 
prodigy profiles on for my first two articles. Uh, so there were, he wasn't the only kid at that time that was, you know, top 10, top 15 for his age, but where he was from was really at that moment, the decider. And it was cool because that article actually started getting shared um, in Iran and my standards for what counts as an article going viral have increased since then. But at the time I was starting this blog from scratch. I had no idea if anyone was going to read it or not. Does anyone care about these stats I'm putting out? And then I started getting emails from people in Iran, like thanking me for writing about this kid. And that was just really cool. Um, What was your assessment of Faruja, like, uh, you know, as a much younger player? So I'm not, really myself good enough at chess to assess like playing styles there's a reason that i keep everything just i look at the rating progress um but one thing i do look at with really young kids is whether or not they're beating higher rated opponents and you can kind of tell the difference between a high rating at a young age that looks like a fluke and a high rating at a young age that looks real and he had the results to really back that rating up. He was playing at that level and getting scoring against, you know, strong opponents when he got the chance to play them. And so that definitely he, all the numbers showed that he was in position to, if he kept it up as he got older, be, you know, a top 10, top 15 player in his age, uh, in his age bracket, historically speaking. And he fluctuated a little, everyone does. It wasn't until he was a little older that he really emerged as a clear contender for record setting paces. Um, His prodigy rank, when I wrote about him at age 11, he was the 11th best player for his age. And he actually dipped over the next year, but then by the time he was 12 and a half, he was back in the top 10 in those figures, dipped again. And even as a 15-year-old, he wasn't the youngest GM of all time. But then, I mean, what him and Magnus both have shown was is that if in terms of eventual elite success, it's more important to be good a little later than to be the best 11 year old isn't necessarily a future world champion, but the best 16 year old needs to be watched very, very closely. And by the time he was 15, he was definitively top 10. By the time he was 16, he was second, second only to Magnus or a couple age spots in there, a couple to Wei Yi. So it was, really over those last couple years that he absolutely emerged as these, his rating gains didn't stop. He never hit one of those plateaus that you expect most people to hit. And that was where he really skyrocketed into the elite scene, which is where a lot more people started paying attention. Right. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you, um, I'm looking now on 27chess.com, which is a fantastic resource, by the way, um, for people who are just interested in, the competitive picture right now. Um, they have this feature of the highest ever ratings. And um, with his live rating right now, Faruja would be uh, number 14 all time in terms of rating. And, uh, you know, 
first of all, I th- you know the the exact meaning of twenty eight hundred versus twenty seven hundred. People who've listened to the podcast uh, before ha- have known that I've kind of talked about the arbitrariness of this with my guests. Um, but nevertheless, um, why I'm asking this is because I'm sure a lot of people are going to say, "Oh, well, you know, a twenty eight hundred today is not the same as a twenty eight hundred back then." Rating inflation, blah blah blah. Um, I've never really known what the answer to that question is about rating inflation. So I was kind of wondering if you had some perspective on that. Yeah. So rating inflation is an interesting thing, of course. Um, It colors a lot of the comparisons to older history. Um, uh, It was pretty aggressive in terms of ratings of the top players as a group collectively and like average ratings at the top and ratings of the number one player all kind of working their way up for uh, through the 80s, 90s, and then it slowed a little in the early 2000s. Um, So certainly for comparing to someone from like the early 80s, today's ratings have almost no realistic comparison. Um, He he did, I think, on that list of highest ratings ever on 2700 chess, just uh, knock Bobby Fischer out of the top 20. Right. Um, And that doesn't mean that his rating versus Fisher's peak rating is entirely comparable. Fisher was so far ahead of everyone else and ELO ratings are ultimately comparative. They're a relative rating. So how far you are ahead of, ahead of someone matters as much as the top line number. So it is definitely not a number you can use to meaningfully compare across eras. But that doesn't mean I think you should underestimate the importance of 2800. Um, like we said, he broke Magnus's record. He had, he had to get there before May of next year to break Magnus's record for youngest 2800. Magnus was 18.93 years old. Right. But it's worth mentioning that he had years to come in second on that list, even if he hadn't caught Magnus. The second youngest player to ever hit 2800 was Fabiano Caruana at 22.02 years old. So getting to 2,800 as an 18-year-old, you might say, hey, he only beat Magnus by a few months, but he's years faster than anyone else. Uh, The third youngest was Wesley So at 23 years old. Then MVL and Dingler N were both 25 when they got there. Pramnik and Kasparov were 26. Theirs are a little more impressive because they were playing in an older era and the rating inflation really applies but ratings have also stabilized quite a bit um most a lot of what the research on a lot of the sort of definitive research on rating inflation that happened in those eras through especially the 90s came out of some articles that jeff sonis wrote that are really excellent articles and he published a lot of that in i believe 2008 and really, and at the time, rating inflation was had slowed a little in those last few years, but was still happening. But when you look back at it, I, I have to do a detailed article on this at some point. I haven't done this. I haven't done the analysis, but from what I can tell, with, without charting it in detail, it seems to have pretty well slowed over the last decade. I think we might have actually inflated to a ratings peak and come a tiny bit back down from it on the other side. Interesting. Because uh, there was a point, right, when Magnus was chasing 2,900 and had several other players over 2,800 behind him. And now we're back. The only two 2,800 players today 
are Magnus and now Ferugia. Right. So I think if you're comparing to, you know, a rating in 1990 or especially in 1980 or something like that, those are different eras and different numbers. But when we're talking about breaking Magnus's record, when we're talking about being years faster than Fabi was to get there, those are still pretty meaningful comparisons. And that 2800 barrier really is something special. And to be only the second teenager to ever get there and to do it younger than the current world champion, like that is a really meaningful milestone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was more or less uh, thinking about, you know, like, uh, like what is the difference between somebody who's, who's 20, what's the difference between somebody who's like 2799 and somebody who's like 2801? Not much, you know, but one is, you know, yeah. one, one crosses the milestone and the other, the other doesn't. So that's kind of what I was alluding to. Although that is, too. Yeah. It is interesting though, to kind of think about, I mean, I mean, again, I don't know how, how good you are at chess. Certainly I'm not the expert on chess, but you have to imagine like the, the main difference between a 2700 and a 2800 is probably just like consistency more than anything. I think, I mean, they're, yeah, like you say, I'm not that strong of a chess player personally. I'm, you know, a, passable club player in the 15 1600 range <laughs> but to try to distinguish you know what makes a 2800 better than a 2700 when they're both so many infinite miles ahead of me is a little beyond most of my understanding um but there's definitely a difference and we can see like when we look at these charts of players' ratings by age that I like to do, we can see how many players hit 2,700 and stay there for years and then break through. A lot of people who, you know, hit a plateau at 2,700, if you're trying to follow them in the, you know, 24-hour news cycle and there'll be questions, what happened to this person? Where did all their potential go? And then, at when they're 26, all of a sudden they shoot up towards 2,800 right. and maybe get there. But there's a reason clearly why the norm is to have plateaus. And what's just extraordinary about Magnus and Ferugia, really, <laughs> period, full stop, is the lack of plateaus. I mean, I guess you could say Magnus plateaued at 2,850. <laughs> Yeah, what a scrub. What's, he, what's wrong with him, right? Why couldn't yeah. he keep going? And there's actually but, a really, there's a really good point actually that someone I I can't remember, but I saw a tweet this morning and I was like, this is so true. Like every time people criticize Magnus, the only benchmark that we really have for a player like Magnus is himself. So for instance, like three years ago when he was facing Caruana and his you know live rating was like I think what twenty eight thirty one or some 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 odd number like mm -hmm. that. Um. And he actually said something to the same degree. What his favorite player was himself five years ago, or whatever. The, like the, the classic, the classic Magnus quote. But um, it it is very interesting that we don't really have a barometer for for Magnus, and even even for Berugia, the only person that we can really compare this insane, uh, you know, rise in in stature to is Magnus. <laughs> yeah, um, I think Magnus and. 
part of this, I think Magnus holds himself to an unfair standard and that echoes through and kind of gives the rest of the chess world permission to do it too. But there's this sense both in Magnus's own interviews that I hear after tournaments where he really did quite well in, by any normal human's standards, any normal super GM standards, any world champion standards. And then certainly through chess Twitter, anytime he fails to you know, finish clear first place in every single event he plays or shows any sign of weakness, there's this idea that like, if he's not playing at a 2900 level, there's something wrong with him. Um, he flirted with maybe being the first 2,900 ever at one point a little while ago, like I mentioned, and didn't quite get there, and he's fallen back down now. And I think we somehow crystallized this vision of the real Magnus is that 2,900 player we never quite saw, and anything less is treated as a disappointment. Right. And so there's a whole lot of, you know, comments I'll see through Twitter and Reddit or wherever of what's wrong with Magnus, why is he struggling, and his struggling means he's playing at like a 2810 performance rating right. and winning some of the tournaments he plays in instead of all of the tournaments and just being a world champion. <laughs> and, right. and I think it's weird to treat that as criticism. But also, I definitely think that part of what clearly made Magnus so great is his competitive spirit. And you can see that when he talks about his own results and he holds himself to those standards. That's very obvious. So he'll be disappointed in himself when he wins a tournament but didn't win one of the games he might have been able to take. And so I think that's part of where that comes from. When he's that hard on himself, it kind of gives the rest of the world, chess world, permission to criticize him somehow, or at least people take it that way. But a lot of it really seems very unfounded to me. I don't think there is... And it's interesting that flows, I think, into the world championship narrative because there's this there's this idea that Magnus hasn't been entirely himself lately. And, yeah, but that's um, like, I, I I like I laugh at that because like like you said, and, I mean, oh, so he he had a blunder in Norway chess. Oh, what does this mean for his? You know, I also think like we we don't really get enough matches these days in chess. Yeah. And, well, and another thing. Another thing driving that narrative over the past year is that he played a whole bunch of rapid chess online and people and some people I've seen at least seem to be judging him by his moves rather than his results in those rapid games. But that's and just insane. Like you're, you're basically you're comparing him to Stockfish and saying, oh, well, but, you know, by, by Stockfish standards, Magnus is a scrub. Well, by Stockfish standards, I'm a scrub. And by, by Magnus playing classical standards magnus playing rapid makes some mistakes that you wouldn't expect to see him make in classical because he's playing rapid right <laughs> and, and i think some of those moves are looked at as if they were played in classical and it's part of it is he's been the best for so long it's boring to just it's like say Tom Brady. Yeah. yeah it's like what they you know how they always say yeah brady's finished i mean i know a lot of my listeners are not from uh from america um, but in America, we have this uh, this super villain named Tom Brady who plays uh, he he plays for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But he 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 was he's basically the greatest American football player in history, and it's like not really close. At least at the quarterback position, it's not really close. But you know, when I was uh, getting into sports as like some you know nine ten year old, he was the best quarterback in the NFL, and uh, people would say, oh well, he's not as good as you know when he won those first rings, and then he won three more championships or so. 
And then, oh, he had some bad season in New England. So I said, oh, he's finished. And then he went to Florida and then he won another one. So that's kind of, to me, like an apt comparison, yeah. like with Magnus, like whatever people say, it doesn't really matter because he's still going to, he's still going to keep winning. And um, something I wanted to add before also was that, you know, with the match, I, I mean, I guess we are, we're all transitioning slowly into this world championship um, topic, which I know, by the way, you, you spoke about earlier this day with um ben johnson of the perpetual chess podcast so if mm -hmm. you guys want to hear a much more in-depth statistical analysis with with the goat um ben you should check out this episode right after this or maybe you're coming here from uh from the episode with ben but in any case uh definitely check that episode out because i'm sure it's gonna be great i will definitely be listening um but something i wanted to say uh is that you know with a match i feel like the kind of openings that are going to be played is going to be very different because magnus is going to ha really know all the ideas in any game that he's going to play i find it very hard to believe that he's going to be so completely shocked by you know what what he, he i find it very unlikely that he's going to be completely unprepared um throughout the match that would that would just be like unthinkable so i i, I don't think you can really compare like one's uh you know tournament form to match form because the, the format really just is so different yeah, um, I'll say that when I modeled the uh, match, and I went into a lot more detail on this with Ben, but the, I'll, when I modeled it, I had to make some adjustments that I don't normally make because the format is so unique. Um, I couldn't just quote the current rating list and plug it into my formulas and feel like I had a realistic result. Um, there's a lot of history of rating favorites in world championship matches not playing up to form 17 of the last 20 world championship matches have seen the ratings favorite underperform their rating. Interesting. So, so the, uh, realist, I mean, it, realistically speaking, you have to assume that there, and it makes sense, right? Like a world championship match, you've got two players playing at their absolute peak with months to prepare specifically for each other that just kind of compresses some of the gaps between them. So uh, there's a lot more room to make it a little closer. Uh, I would, I, Magnus is still a huge favorite. He is, uh, like we were saying, I, believe, I, I firmly believe that the, uh, all the narrative of what's wrong with Magnus is pretty heavily overblown. And I mean, I wouldn't even what's say wrong with him? Like I would say contrived even. I mean, he's playing like a 2835, 2840 when he used to play like a 2860. So, I mean, there's technically something there, but no one else until today was a 2800. Yeah. So it's also <laughs> so, like, you know, maybe he has like a girlfriend now or something that he, you know, right. to put some time. Like it could literally be anything. And, and the fact remains, he's still like at a, at a different stratosphere compared yeah. to, he's still 50 so, points ahead of Ferruja. Yes. So there's no question for me that he is the best player in the world still, though I certainly would love to see him and Ferruja play a match and maybe that'll happen in the next world championship. We'll see. Or the next but, candidates. Or it could happen. Well, they but won't that's play not a match. match yeah, that's not candidates. a match. That's, that's two games. Yeah. <laughs> but it could have, they could face each other there. That would make uh, Ferruja's path a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll see where all of that shapes up, but I mean, yeah, right now there's no question that Magnus is the best player in this, in the match and is in fact a clear favorite. Uh, I think it's, I know that a whole lot of people and some really huge names have 
called the match 60 40 or even said it's close to a toss up. Uh, ben and find? I talked. Like, I just, just a tease. I, I disagree. So my my model puts Magnus at 81.5% wow. to win the match, which is actually pretty close to where most of the bookmakers have it. 75 to 80% is the betting where most of the betting odds lie. And I mean, thing uh, odds can be wrong, and I had to make some assumptions. Uh, there's nothing like definitively truthful and about my analysis, but other people have done similar analyses. Uh, yes, Smarter Chess on Chess.com said eighty percent, and um, Ben told me about another article that just came out today that I haven't had a chance to read yet that put the odds in a similar range. So it's pretty clear that when you actually run the numbers on it, like I and several others have done, Magnus is just better than the 60-40 favorite that a lot of people think, um, which seems kind of self-evident to me. He's just, he said it himself, his main advantage is that he's better at chess, and it doesn't seem like there's a way to argue with that fact. Now, what will actually happen, we don't know. Um, he's 74 points better in the ratings. Kasparov was 77 points better than Kramnik in 2000. That's a good point. So if Nepo, you said you'd be shocked if Nepo shows up with some kind of opening surprise that really catches Magnus off guard. But for a whole match, I also think like the tools were different back then. Like now, you know, if they get hit with the with the Berlin Wall, you know, he and his team will just go back into the hotel and analyze it to death and have it in the morning for him. So like, you know, I I, I can't imagine a similar thing to where you know Kramnik was basically just saying, "I'm going to play the Berlin Wall again and again and, and slow you down." I mean, I th that that's mm -hmm. not that really I don't think is going to happen, and especially because well, you know, if we talk about the Berlin. Um, well, you know, I think it would be good for chess, maybe, if uh, if uh, some opening like the Berlin, I guess, uh, in the sense that some opening that's not very popular right now gets resurrected by one of the teams and becomes some, like, top-line thing just because of all the ideas that they show in this match. That would be really cool. Because um, certainly the Berlin wasn't that popular yeah. before. The... Something changes theory the way that the Berlin did. It wouldn't be the Berlin, of course, now, but something else. Right. I, there are certainly other opening discoveries that we don't know of yet and if someone shows up with one of them at this match that'd be pretty cool for chess theory and if it's nepo that could totally change some of the analysis but that's i think priced in to the fact that he has an 18 and a half percent chance of winning the match and so of course we'll have to watch to see where it goes but right now i do want to ask you um Another thing, uh, I, I actually I would like to talk to you about like how exactly you work because you know um, I am a I'm an astrophysicist um, in my day to day life. I, yes, I'm a student, but I, I do consider myself an astrophysicist, um, and I yeah I do some statistical analysis for for my work as a you know as a researcher. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious how how you actually come up with these things. But first, I I want to ask you one other. This is more I don't know exactly how well you can answer this question, but you know seeing seeing uh, Faruja at this number two spot. We think about you know some of the really great players um, in the last decade or so that have scratched that number two. You know they've crossed twenty eight hundred. Like you know immediately comes to mind like Caruana, Nakamura, um, Wesley So, uh, Mabidyarov. I think all of them were number two to Magnus at some point. Now it's true they didn't have the uh, the youth uh, with him, but I don't know. It's 
do you, do you think it's likely that that uh, Feruza could actually cross that number one spot and take that for Magnus? I don't know about likely. Um, I have, I believe, too much in Magnus to say it's likely, but I definitely believe enough in Feruza to say it's possible. Um, he's not the first 2,800, not the first person to climb into that number two spot, but it feels different. I agree. I definitely agree. Um, and the age is a huge part of it. Um, everyone else who's gotten there, it felt like getting to number two was a culmination. Right. Like Naka, for and, example. Right. Uh, it's like Magnus, they, they got to number two and it's like, yes, they made it. They're the challenger. And it doesn't feel like Faruja has made it yet. He got to number two. He didn't get to number two while winning the candidates. He got to number two while qualifying for the candidates. Right. And he's only 18 years old. Right. And it just, it feels like he still has another gear. And that's a feeling. I don't have any numbers to prove that that's the of case course. other than the fact that if you look at ratings by age, the only comparison I can put on his trajectory is Magnus, but that's also just one data point. I can't say, hey, his trajectory looks like Magnus, so he's definitely going to do what Magnus did. Uh, I, You could have said that about Wei Yi up until the age of around, around 17, I think, and then he didn't quite stick to it, though I wouldn't right. give up on him yet, um, right? We talked about those plateaus at 2,700. He's right. He's still, still 22. Young. He's, he's my age. Yeah. <laughs> he's still one of the up, could be one of the up and coming young players of the, of the future. And he could be a future candidate too, but he still hit that plateau that most people hit that basically everyone except Magnus hit. And the fact that Ferugia hasn't up through now, and that even this 2,800 feels like not even his real rating. Cause you look at his performance. Um, it's not even just these tournaments, right? Uh, Ferugia's since post pandemic, since chess resumed, Ferugia was performance rating 2880 at Norway 2020. Wow. Uh, 2810 at Tata Steel. Uh, had, had a bad World Cup, got knocked out by Sindarov in his first round. Uh, but then 2871 at Norway 2021. 2855 at the Grand Swiss, and now 3004 performance rating at the Euro Champs. Yeah, so that's, that's remarkable. The point being, he's over a 55 game sample now, going back 13 months, played at a 2850 clip consistently. So it feels like he really is a 2850 player who's rating already, whose rating hasn't just caught up yet. Which is true. The ELO rating is a, with the K factor of ten that Fide uses is a little slow to catch up when people's ratings start ch change dramatically. And mm -hmm. if someone is badly underrated, they can stay underrated for a while. So that's, I guess, a numeric or statistical argument for why it's reasonable to think that Ferugia isn't going to be done now that he hit number two, but that he is still coming and has room to chase that number one spot. He's right. playing at a performance equivalent to the rating he's chasing. So if he keeps that up, then he could get there. And, you know, I think regardless, it's, it's very good. For, it's, this is a, it's really good for, you know, if it's true that Feruza is, let's say, at a 2850 level, that really puts him neck and neck with Magnus. 
and you know magnus magnus really cares about the number one spot um so i mean i've talked about this with a couple of my guests already but you know having them go neck and neck for that number one spot like in, in the next year or two uh that i mean that's a hell of a story i think that's um that's gonna be really interesting for sure um i think that's something an actual battle at the top and especially the age difference is there to make it that give you that narrative magnus isn't Magnus isn't old yet, but it gives you that narrative of, you know, the, a challenger from the next generation, that 12 year gap. It's enough to be, is this a changing of the guard or can the older champion, you know, hold on to his crown or for how long can he hold on? Even it's if all, he, actually, you know, you know, it's very similar to, uh, to some uh, Karpov Kasparov because Karpov is also 12 years older than Kasparov. Um, yep, I I love that the age difference is the same as yeah. Karpov Kasparov, and I think they're even similar. There's even some stylistic similarities there, right? Absolutely. The, I, I mean, not that they're these players aren't all great at everything, but Magnus is probably considered a little more solid and a little more positional, and Frugia right. is a little more of the attacking player that young Kasparov was, as he was, you know. Coming after, so yeah, it's it's a very fun parallel for sure. Uh, it's its own story, so it will play out in its own path. But the comparison is hard to ignore. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's 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 really spicy stuff from uh from a storyline, and I mean that's that's the great part about chess. These kind of you know narratives are just weave and weave and weave. But uh, I I mean also you know with Kurt, like with uh, Ferruja's incredible run, I mean the, the one thing that 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 kept the whole run interesting was this loss to Fabiano. Where mm-hmm. It was kind of like Fabiano almost saying, you know, you you still got to get past the big boys in a way because you know he was mm-hmm. like destroying like twenty six hundreds left and right, and uh, he's I, I destroying twenty seven hundreds left and right too, now. Now hasn't... yes, but I mean in, in the Grand <laughs> Swiss it was like it was like you know Abasov, uh, Swerts, and Yu Yang. Well, Yu Yang he had a draw with him, I think. But it was the first three wins were against like twenty six fifties or something. Um, but I mean obviously we know that you know, but, but back then. Even this is, you know, it's funny because this is like the start of November. I didn't personally know if he was going to cross 2,800. Um, and here he is. He's there, and I don't really think he's, he's planning on stopping. So it's it's really interesting. And for me, I kind of wonder, like, where did this actually come from? Because this is, a like you said, like a performance rating when you said something is like 141 points, like above where he was at the start of the pandemic. I mean, that is phenomenal. That's That's absolutely insane. I mean... You know, all things considered, like I, I don't know. What, I, I mean, I would love to ask him, like, like you know, if it's just like a lot of working, if it's just kind of this like explosion of just you know, maybe, maybe now that he's in a more stable living situation, that now that he's moved out of Iran for his career, like maybe, maybe that's contributed. I really don't know, but it, it is kind of remarkable that he he went from this obviously like world class player to like now we're talking about him going neck and neck with Magnus um, for the top spot, and it's not unrealistic to do so. Yeah, I mean, where it came from is a fascinating question that's beyond the scope of anything my spreadsheets can ever tell me, but I would love to hear his take on it. Um, How, yeah, like through all those years when he was a number two prodigy, second only to Magnus already, was that what he did when he was being held back by something? And is that something gone now? And I mean, what kind of a, what level of talent does he truly have? And 
I mean, and also he, like I'm curious how he works too. I'm really, I'm really curious. Yeah, I don't know anything about what his study regimen looks like. I, I vaguely understand that when he was younger, he was significantly more self-taught than most of today's top players. But that I don't know exactly what any of that looks like or how he's training now. But something is working. That's right. for sure. This is the French food, maybe. The escargot or something. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> That's got to be the key right there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't know if you eat. Uh, I don't know if you eat escargot. If you do not, I, I apologize. Um, but uh, I've never had it. I don't plan on having it, to be honest. Um, I'm not a big fan of snails. Um, I guess uh, I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about, about, like I said, about like how exactly you work. But let's actually start by previewing some of your, your current and upcoming projects. And maybe we can go from there. Because, okay. um, you know, first of all, you should you should follow Chess by the Numbers on Twitter. Uh, it's at Chess Numbers. Uh, if you want really in-depth uh, statistical analysis of, you know, tournaments that are being played in real time, or if you want to just uh, learn more about, you know, the competitive scene, uh, he's your guy. And I've been following you for, for a long time, and it's, it's really informed a lot of the chess discussion that I've had on this channel. So I thank you for that, and I'm glad to have you, like I said. So give the follow, and now I'm just curious what you're going to be working on. So the biggest thing is I just relaunched my uh, Prodigy Watch feature. Uh, so the blog, I launched it in 2015 and it, I kept it active for like about a year and a half till mid 2016 and then drifted away. Um, it sat dormant for a while and I actually got back into chess like a lot of people from Queen, the Queen's Gambit. Uh, that got me interested again, and I decided to relaunch the blog in January of this year, January 2021. So I relaunched it with tournament coverage of Tata Steel, and that's been my main focus since the relaunch. Um, originally, I kind of did two things, right? I covered top tournaments, what are the odds of players winning, etc., cetera, uh, especially if it affected the world championship cycle and with an eye towards qualifying for candidates tournaments and that kind of thing. And then I had Prodigy Watch. When I relaunched it, we had all these kids who hadn't played in almost a year at that point. Because uh, chess shut down in March of 2020. And a year makes such, an, such a huge difference when you're looking at is a player setting a record rating for their age as a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old that... I couldn't really relaunch Prodigy Watch then and have it mean anything. I, all these players that had been, you know, in March of 2020, a top 10 player of all time for their age would have been, you know, ranked 30th. And that just wasn't fair to do. So I held off on doing anything with the Prodigy Watch side of my blog until this until I, I started, you know, thinking maybe it's time at the World Cup because a few we had quite a few of those youngsters make some pretty deep runs. But even that, that was the first tournament back for a lot of them. So there was still some significant ratings lag. But then over the last few months, a whole lot more opportunities to play have happened. We've seen a whole lot of kids shine and start gaining rapidly those rating points that you know they're just catching up to their strength as they, cause they were improving while they weren't playing. And what put me over the top uh, was it was round, I think eight of the grand Swiss when 
Ferugia and Sevian were both right there at the top. And I'm like, hey, those were the first two people I ever wrote about. Right. Look where they are now. It's time. I'm going to relaunch Prodigy Watch. And whether you want to think of it as the November 2021 Prodigy update or whether you want to think of it as the 2028 Grand Swiss preview, <laughs> uh, that was what really put me over the edge to say it's time. So I got my database updated, put out an article recently, and that's now going to be a monthly feature that's back. And so with so, Prod Prodigy Watch, I, I actually, if I recall correctly, 2700 Chess um, just came out with a uh, their own version of kind of like the top junior players that they never had mm -hmm. on the site before. Um, Faruja, by the way, he's clearly number one on that. <laughs> by almost, yep. I think, 85 points or something like that, which is pretty remarkable. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, names for people who are a little plugged into the chess world. You know, you have Vincent Keimer, Nihal Sarin, Hans Niemann, Andrei Sipenko's number two, um, Nodir Beka Abzutorov, uh, Arjun Arigasi, who had this incredible performance at the Tata Steel Rapid, Gukes, Prakananda. So um, it's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty, pretty good stuff. But how is, how is your, um, I guess I'm wondering, how is what, like, you do different from just, you know, uh, update, oh, here are the top junior players. So the biggest difference is I don't just sort it by rating. I actually, I adjust really specifically for ages. So uh, the all of it's built around the concept of what I call the prodigy rank, which is just how many people have been rated high, higher than you currently are at a younger age than you currently are. And that's age to the day. Um, so that you don't, you know, have your prodigy rank drop on your birthday. It's just based on the public rating, uh, published uh, rating date. So it allows us me to track, you know, in different age brackets. So you, the number one prodigy rank can be held by more than one person at the same time. There could be one person who has, who's 16 years old that has the highest rating that any 16 year old has ever had. And another player could simultaneously be the best 12 year old of all time. So it's all kind of for your age. So we can sort out, you know, the difference between when we look at that uh, 2700 chess uh, juniors tab, we can sort the difference between, you know, the third best junior who's 20 and the fourth best junior who's only 17. Right. And then working further down the list at 13 and 14th on that list are a pair of 15 year olds, Sadwani and Gakesh. So that's... That's the piece that I try to bring. So uh, I use as my baseline, what is this player's prodigy rank based on their age and their current rating and who came before them? I see. Uh, and it's going to be fun to see who some of the next up and comers are. I've got a couple uh, when I updated my database and I found a few names I hadn't been tracking yet uh, there's a couple 11 year olds to look out for in the next decade so and there's always you know so many volatile swings with the ratings of some of those young kids when they get a chance to play that new people are showing up on that list all the time so every month i'm just gonna do a do an update there and see i i, I list uh everyone who's got a prodigy rank of 50th or better which if you're top 50 for your age, as a kid, who knows where that goes? The younger you are, the less predictive it is. But if you're, you know, top 50 for your age when you're 30, 
that means you're a super GM. Right. <laughs> so being so a top 50 prodigy rank means you certainly have some serious potential. Now, um, what, what kind of motivates um, you to like, let's say, look at 11 year old chess players and, and kind of like, what, what, what's the, what's the engine behind that? Is it just trying to see like, you know, what, what the changing of the guard is going to be like, uh, you know, what the chess scene might look in 10 years. Like well, what's exactly the motivation behind this? I've never been able to put to words why I find it so fascinating. Um, but I know that I do. Um, you could also ask why is the NFL draft, uh, you know, three day television event in the United States. <laughs> um, so you're saying Prodigy Watch is like the NFL draft? For chess, sure. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a snapshot of what the future might be. And I don't know why I find that fascinating, but I know that I do. And clearly a lot of other people do as well. Um, it's in not just in chess, but in every area. Uh, you look at how many views of a YouTube video gets of some really young kid being super impressive for their age at whatever talent, music, dance. It's like, have you seen anything. that? Uh, have you seen that video of uh, Misha Osipov? who was like a, like a three-year-old Russian kid mm -hmm. who, you know, he played Anatoly Karpov in the studio. And like, the, there's a meme where like the dark souls three music starts playing. Yep. That's a classic. That's one of the all time great memes ever. Forget chess. That's just like one of the all time great. Like Anatoly Karpov got it like a second win. They had all these people <laughs> were, like plugged into like the, the meme culture, you know, at my age. And they're like, oh, I've never heard of this guy before. Seems seems cool. I'm like, yeah, he's the world champion, former world champion. Pretty, pretty funny stuff. You said you work with databases a little bit, but when it comes to statistical analysis, what are your, what tools are you actually using? Is it like Python? Is it? I do almost everything in Excel. Um, really? So you said you're interested as an, you consider yourself an amateur statistician. I'll say that so do I. Um, I don't have that great of a like academic expertise in high level statistics. Um, I think it's not that I'm a brilliant statistician I, that informs my work. I think rather that uh, I look at it from trying to find narratives. And so it's never just the numbers for me. That's always a starting point. And occasionally I'll do some data dump kind of stuff of here's what the numbers show. Sure. But I'm generally always trying to figure out not just what the numbers are, but also what story they tell. Uh, ultimately, by my final major that I settled on was accounting. But before I was an accounting major, I did dabble as a, in, in a journalism major and actually a physics major before that. I thought I was going to be an astrophysicist when I was 18, but that didn't stick. Yeah. <laughs> Not um, that popular. <laughs> it's gotten more popular recently, actually, I have to say. It's, I think it should be. It's a fantastic field. I found, I realized I didn't enjoy the level of math it takes. Um, when I started getting into some of the more advanced math classes, I just right. said, this isn't fun for me. And that's too much of the job. So I went another way and started writing about sports and then realized that I didn't want to be a professional journalist because I looked at career paths. And then I realized that accounting would send me to the life I wanted. So that's how my progression through school went. But definitely that journalism side has stuck with me. And so, yeah, I love statistics. I've loved probability in particular since I was a little kid. 
um, uh, analyzing every game I've ever played. Uh, most of my early probability work involved dice. Interesting. <laughs> and that yeah. was sort of what I cut my teeth on. And so I'm fascinated by probability and statistics, but I'm not really an expert in it. Um, probably a lot of my readers have a better grounding in the field than I do. But it always starts not just with, for me, not just with the raw numbers, but with a question. Right. Uh, anytime I'm out here throwing data in a spreadsheet, it's because I'm curious about something. Uh, Prodigy Watch started when I was just posting on chess message boards. Uh, and I, for, I don't actually remember the first time you know, someone mentioned some young kids rating and I was like, is that a record? And they couldn't answer it. And I went <laughs> to Google it and I couldn't get a, find an answer. So I realized the only way to know if that was a record was if I put together a database of every prodigy's rankings. So you're just and, like I didn't, and I didn't do it immediately. I mean, it took, it, it was sort of a gradual building, but right. it all started with that question. Is that a record? I don't know. And apparently no one else does either, but I would like to know. So I went out and answered it for myself and realized once I had done all that work, I might not be the only person interested. So I threw it up on a blog and started getting page views. Right. And same thing with the tournaments. Like, uh, I think it particularly started with some of the tournaments that had qualifying spots up in the air and, you know, what are the chances of finishing top two in this event and getting no one really knows like those betting odds on who's going to win, but no, that's there actually my favorite. That's my favorite thing about what you do is is it, it's when you're like I remember with the candidates a couple of months ago, and it was not just looking at this like MVL Nepo race, but also like, oh, here's Anish Giri, where could he finish? And you mm -hmm. actually you look at the odds for everybody in, in a way that that it's really nice because um, it, like you said, when you go back to the storylines, it it gives you like it gives you perspective and so maybe some foresight for for some of the storylines that that might come about later, and, and in terms of the competition, yeah. and that's stuff like like you said that a lot of people don't do in chess. And I mean, I know even though you say you're like an amateur statistician yourself, um, I'm always very impressed by your work. I, I really think there, there's nothing quite like it. Um, it's actually funny that you mentioned the journalism thing too, because uh, I actually wanted to go into journalism when I was 18. Uh, and I went into astrophysics <laughs> in the end. Um, and, uh, you know, I know you said that you you um, you didn't like the math that it took, but I could tell you that I also don't like the math that it takes. And Actually, why I'm in Denmark is because um, I'm doing like what's called computational astrophysics. So it's really using coding and 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 like data analysis, like large scale data analysis. This is basically what I do for my job here. Um, but basically, all the research I've done in the last two months has literally been algebra. I literally am I'm reading papers. I find equations in papers and I I Frankenstein them together. And it's all pen and paper math, and it is absolutely horrible. I hate it. And um, but it's been really good for me to actually work on that. Um, so math is fun, and this is this is it proof is. that math is fun. And math is also a big topic. I found the math that I find fun, and I've managed to set myself up to do that math. And right. I think that's a great answer, to <laughs> great way to succeed. Do what you enjoy if you can. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's where my driver comes from always is asking questions. And Ultimately, the goal is exactly what you said you got out of, get out of it, which is great to hear because what I'm trying to do is offer context and narratives 
on professional chess that allow people to enjoy it more. I think chess is an incredible sport, an incredibly underrated sport. And some whether you either get stuck on the debate of whether it's a sport at all it's a or competitive whether, endeavor. It is a competitive endeavor that or, people <laughs> or whether you grant that, but then you say, oh, but classical chess is no fun to watch. The games take that's, too long. That's BS. That's just I, I, I disagree completely. And but I also I understand why people feel that way. And if you don't know what's going on, then that makes sense. But I also think a problem with the, I mean, even you say with, with Rapid, I mean, Rapid is supposed to be more fun than classical, but then you had people in these Meltwater events who basically just phoned it in the whole time in, in the last event. And I, I, like I've talked about this in my podcast, you can't even really hate when the, the format is designed the way it is. I mean, it's not fun as a fan, but you had like four of the 10 players, like completely phone it in, like Wesley So, Nakamura, and... Uh, what the Rodrabov is what they called him. And even now they're accusing him of phoning it in now. Like he's had, like, I think in, in this last tournament that he's played, he's had another like uh, nine straight draws, I think at the ECTC. So I'd be slower to criticize draws in a team tournament. Cause there's always match strategy factors. Yeah. But you know, chess 24, I, I think they, you know, <laughs> but, they, but when you, when you're already struggling with that reputation yeah. and then you draw nine in a row at a, but I mean, what For people sure. want him to lose? I, I don't know. I but my point is like, uh, I think in chess, what we need is more events like the Grand Swiss and the World Cup. We need a lot more I, events like those because the, the people need to play for wins at the end of the day. Um, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and if, okay, if it goes to a faster time, so be it. But we've also seen in the World Cup that uh, you know, yes, a lot of games are settled in rapid, but there are also a lot of really interesting classical games. If you follow the tournaments, you you can't say that they, they you know, and every storyline. Let's say even when Magnus was playing, every match that he played in that was was fascinating. Every single every single match he played, there was like a interesting storyline or really interesting games or you know, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know. I don't think classical chess is boring as, at all. In fact, you know, I don't I think, either. Yeah, but it's true that a lot of people do say that. But maybe if you feel that way, and I've talked about this on the podcast, so maybe again, I'm just a parrot, like again and again. But you should root for Nepo to win because in order for Nepo to win, we're gonna need to have at least one really interesting classical game. You know? Yeah, that's true. Or for Magnus to win decisively, but you're going to need, you know, against two of the elite players, you're going to have some decisive matches, and you can't tell me that classical chess is dead if if you have you still have these exciting uh, things going on. And, you know, going back to Kasparov-Karpov, I mean, how many draws did they have in a row? <laughs> right? So, <laughs> maybe this has always just been a problem. I mean, chess is maybe, it's more like a, like in the match, right? It's more about just looking for weaknesses over time rather than, you know, in a, in a snapshot of a game where... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, and I mean, and my approach to the philosophy that I, he I hear people say that classical chess is boring. And so I, one of the things I try to offer is just different ways to look at it. Um, I understand that people have limited time. Not everyone can watch chess for six hours a day for nine, 10 straight days and just actually watch every moment that happens in a chess tournament. That's a, that is a valid criticism of classical chess being a hard thing to watch. Most people can't watch an entire tournament from start to finish that way, but I would argue you don't have to. Um, and especially if you have a good sense of which games are most important and how much will this game swing the potential results and who's the favorite and who are the underdogs and what are the narratives. Uh, one of the things that I feel like I can, that that analysis offers people 
is the opportunity to get actually a lot of joy out of just looking at the results afterwards, if that is all they have time for, the way people read box scores of a baseball game or whatever. Baseball is a very good analogy, I think. And baseball was my favorite sport as a kid. Uh, Makes sense. Not surprised. Shocking, right? Uh, I'm probably the, I was probably the only 10 year old who, when asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, said they wanted to be the official scorekeeper for a major league baseball team. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was my dream as a 10 year old scorekeeper. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I did scorekeeping in high school for basketball. That was actually, I had a lot of fun doing that. It's, I'm just, it's, isn't it a blast? It's so fun when you see your friend, like getting a rebound and you get to put in a rebound assist. I was the only mm-hmm. person in my like high school's history who kept track of the rebounds, steals, assists. And we had some insane, this was on girls basketball. I like every now and then somebody would get like a triple double. And, you know, if you just look in the box score and you see, like, okay, like, 20 points on, like, you know, 8 of 20 shots or whatever, you think not that good. But now add in, like, 11 rebounds, 9 assists, mm-hmm. and, like, 3 blocks. That's a pretty big impact on the... So. For sure. Basketball scorekeeping is hard, so good on you. Uh, really I've tried hard. a couple times. I can keep up with baseball. The plays are more discreet. But yeah. basketball is hard, really hard to keep score for. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I think... And what... What classical chess has that rapid doesn't, we've kind of touched on this even a little earlier with the Magnus conversation of the criticism being based on moves he makes in rapid. Classical chess has higher quality of play. Much give higher. people t- give a bet, give an elite chess player time to think, and they will play better chess, of course. And for me, I really think that means something. I think when we're talking about the highest level of the sport, what we have to be talking about is an opportunity for people to showcase the best possible chess that human beings can play. And I think classical gives us that on a level that rapid never will. Right. Rapid gives us an adrenaline rush. Um, Blitz even more so. And I enjoy watching Blitz and rapid events too. Uh, While they're happening, I love them. Once they're over, I can't remember who won. Um, I think they're more fun to watch in the moment. The adrenaline is pumping and that's great. And I like the excitement and it's tense and that's wonderful. And I enjoy them and I want more of them because that's a pleasurable experience to watch. And I think it's great to have high stakes tournaments at that level at that time control, but I don't ultimately feel like they matter that much. Right. They're entertaining and entertainment is great and if it grows chess i'm all for it uh so i definitely want to see rapid and blitz expand and have more high stakes rapid and blitz that we can continue to watch and enjoy and love but i don't feel like it really matters that much in the long run the way the classical results matter and uh, there is no one will ever have a run in any rapid or blitz tournament that I will remember seven years later, like when Caruana won, won seven straight games. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I knew you were right? going to say that. But it's just like exactly like, that. It's just uh, so much more remarkable. Like Which that is, say, is some... yeah, like when like Arjun Arigasi, like, you know, had, I think he started nine out of nine in this last event. Like that's still very impressive, but it's not even. Yeah, it, it was great. It was fun and it isn't, wasn't historic right. on the level that. Fabi was. It right. doesn't need to be etched in the history of chess in the same way. It makes me want to watch him play classical. Right. I, I mean, I, when I saw, I'm, I'm really excited for uh, Arjun, and I think that's that he, he's in my prodigy watch, and I'm 
I can't wait to see where his career goes from here and what next steps he takes. And what I'm looking for is what he does in classical chess after proving, obviously, he's a wonderful chess player. Um, I do think that while there are a few people that do specialize in certain time controls, that's another thing that's somewhat overblown in the chess world. And I would argue that good at chess is good at chess. It's not an accident that the vast majority of the top 10 are the same people at any time control right. and where they aren't, it's usually that the sample sizes aren't big enough in the uh, faster events, but. Or like Naka has been like, you know, number two in rapid and blitz really number one before he had this actually funny. He had that incredible run in the St. Louis and then he went down to number two, but he's number 19 on the classical, I think, because he hasn't played a classical game in two years. So we have no idea what his mm-hmm. like, classical playing strength is. Yeah. And, and but I know I that he's, he's like chosen to go yeah, but I can't imagine he's 2,500, right? Like, No, I think he could, he would, I, I know, I don't think, I know that he could play very competitive classical chess if he chose to. He's mostly chosen not to. I was really hoping, I was really eager to see him at the Grand Swiss. Yeah, I, because I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I was hoping that he'd qualify for the candidates. I really, yeah, I'm a big Nakamura fan because um, he's the guy that really got me into chess. I know he's kind of a, you know, pe- people, a lot of people don't like him and whatnot. He, he was, he was, on the cover of the very first a copy of Chess Life that I I ever got. Right. Um, I have a, I have so, a little yeah, soft he, spot for him. Like uh, I always find myself rooting for him, and, and I don't know if it, in a weird way. I don't know if it's like in tennis, like you know, there's some of these like iconoclastic kind of maverick kind of people that you know everyone just hates. Like I'm um, thinking of Kyrgios, for example. I don't know. Is Nakamura the Kyrgios of? Uh, this is a very deep uh, sports episode, actually. Very. I'm really showing off my my sports knowledge. <laughs> I feel so good. I feel like, uh, but you know, actually, one thing before we go to this uh, sponsored section that I have at the end of the show, I want to just bring up one thing you mentioned about classical. For me, what's hard about classical is not actually the games itself; it's the production around it. And what I think that professional chess needs to do is they need to turn. And, and this is like I think the Meltwater Studio Tour. You know, they were great for Rapid. But I don't know. I'm really curious to see how they're going to do when Magnus is taking one hour on a move instead of one minute. How are the how mm-hmm. interesting are those discussions going to be? But weirdly, what I'm saying is, is my favorite commentary duo for like these championship matches is uh, like uh, Lawrence Trent and uh, Jan Gustafsson because you know the position gets a bit dry in a game in a world championship match that's probably headed for like a 30 move draw. You know, just everything comes off. Bishops four pawns on one side and you know one half one half. They will turn the next three hours into like a podcast, basically. And they'll, yeah. they'll riff, they'll meme, they'll say funny things, they'll say controversial things. And then that is like, you can you can keep that on. You can go put that in the car, you know, like you when you work. And I think that's actually really easy for people to, most people today. I mean, if, if people are taking an hour out of their week to listen to 64, a chess podcast, I mean, you can just also, you know, I'm sure you can find an hour in your day to get some fun stuff but i think what ends up happening especially for a lot of new players is you know all these commentary things are either this is going to be this super high in-depth uh discussion that most people can't really get into or it's kind of the opposite where it's like you know you kind of lose the script a little bit and i, I think the, the, the that's a really a missed opportunity to fill in the blanks with some really funny weird content but maybe that's just me i mean yeah what to do with those gaps is one of the challenges because 
I mean, you definitely lose audience right. in those moments. And it's one of the challenges of a world championship match. It is the most important and highest stakes and should be the most entertaining. But also there's only one game. So if you lose the thread of what to say about this game, if it hits a position where you think you've covered what is going on, there isn't another game to switch to. So that's a definitely a challenge for coverage teams. Right. And there's a lot of really uh, fascinating coverage teams coming together for this There's match so I don't know. many I, 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 and it, we're, so we're going to see a lot of different approaches of how to handle those and that's going to be one of i think the coolest things uh, my answer will be if a position is dry to bounce around and see what everyone is saying about it um i also won't be able to watch all of every game myself time zones mean they start at 4 30 a.m where i live i'm having it on every single day here i'm literally i am i'm going to be playing this like uh yeah, every single day when I'm at work, I'm gonna have it on, and I'm gonna come home. Off it. Like I, I'm, I can't not tell you how excited I am for this thing. Like, I will be setting an alarm to watch from move one on the first game, yeah. and from there, we'll. I won't be able to do that for all fourteen. <laughs> I cannot spend two weeks getting up at a right. four thirty a.m. every day, but I'll do it for game one, and then Go see where there, it goes yeah. from there. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting match though, and I'm I'm re- I'm really looking forward to it. And um, yeah, I, I I don't know. It's for me, you know. I also I, so apparently Maurice Ashley, who I I've been like trying to get so bad on my show, and you know we haven't been able to make it work, but um, apparently he's doing on NBC Sports, mm-hmm. which is crazy. So now you have in America, you're going to have it on TV on a sports channel. Yep. That's uh, that, I mean the the. the and if if you had to pick anybody, you have to go with Maurice, I think, because he's like the. I feel like he's he's he really is has the universal appeal, knows exactly how to reach a broad audience, and he's very cool too. Um, and I think I think those are thirty minutes each day, so it'll be like condensed. Right. Okay, I think that's gonna be is, great. I'm really interested. Is, seems like a perfect way to present it is to a bigger audience, right. uh, people people who may have heard of chess or thought of chess for the first time because Queen's Gambit came out and not really gotten into it and have never followed top-level chess, they won't watch a classical game. Uh, I will grant, I understand why they won't. Um, I think maybe someday they could, but they're not going to start there. So that I think is, no, I think that's really cool that they've got that coming on NBC Sports and that is coverage I'm really eager to see just how they handle it and how they approach it and how they present the game. Cause it's definitely targeted at a broader audience. And I'm hoping that it really does very well and shows that televising chess makes sense. Right. I agree. I mean, you think about this. Is the last thing I think I'm, I'm going to say is that, um, you think about like Fabi three years ago, the audience wasn't quite there. And I'm curious, you know, after all these booms and this new interest in chess and just this more and more uh, opportunities to broadcast, I really would like to see Fabiano get another shot at Magnus. And I, and I hope he does, you know, as, as an American, I really hope that he gets it. I know he's in the candidates now. I think the entire world is rooting for Ferruja. I probably will be rooting for Ferruja too. But with that being said, it would be cool or interesting at the very least to see how does America, you know, I don't think we'll ever get like a Fisher-esque kind of response to, unless there really is some, you know, hyper-talented kid that, you know, like a Josh Waiskin too, that fulfills the potential or something. But other than that, I don't really see, um, I would be really curious to see three years later, how, how does America respond to this chess boom? And if maybe there will be real interest in the career of an American player, like who could actually be the champion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ferruja and Fabi being the top two at the Grand Swiss was my dream finish. Um, definitely, uh, I do have. 
Well, David Howell too. David Howell, I was. I was. I, I, if Howell had gotten in instead, I would have been so incredibly over the moon for him. That was a great run. Uh, was wonderful watching him. But I mean, Ferrugia is my favorite player, and right. as an American, even just as a chess fan, I mean, okay, he's not number two now. Ferrugia is, but Fabi has been in that number two spot for so long that if he got left out of the candidates entirely, that would have felt weird. Right. Just, I agree. Like it wouldn't have felt like a real candidates tournament without him. So I think just for that reason, as a chess fan, I'm glad he's there. And then as an American chess fan, I'm definitely glad he's there. Uh, but I mean, Ferrugia is my favorite player. I think my rooting interest probably lands there. I have, I will say I don't root against anyone. I can't. Um, the more I cover chess and write about all of these players, I just like all of them more and more. Right. So it's really hard to not just be, Whoever wins, be like, yay, them. Um, I'm pretty much rooting for everyone all the time, which is weird in a competitive endeavor. Since No, but it's hard to be a hater in chess. It, 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 it really, it's not like, it's not like, because uh, they're people. Right? I mean, I apparently a lot of people pull it off from what I see on but Twitter, I don't really, but I, I don't understand how and why, like. Like if it was teams, I understand that if it's on like, you know, nationalities and stuff, obviously there's all these kinds of like national rivalries and whatnot. I kind of get that, you know, like, oh, you know, there's always going to be this like uh, U.S. Russia, like, uh, ha, like from the Cold War or whatever. I don't feel that way personally, but, you know, some people do. I can't I I can understand that. But, you know, really with it's not even like tennis because in tennis, there's so much more money and so much more production and stuff like that With, with I mean, really, like half the guys in the top 100, you could probably DM on Twitter. Or on Lee Chess, and they'll answer you. So like they're mm-hmm. they're way closer to uh, to us, and I think it's 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 just kind of wrong to be a hater in general. As much as you dislike somebody, like they're still most of them are hyper competitive, and it is what it is. Like I don't know, I don't find myself really rooting against anybody either. I'm not a hater. Yeah, I can give you reasons to root for any player you want, anytime you want. Um, yeah, I yeah. think chess is great and. We wouldn't have it without all of these great players out there yep. giving us a show. So so I do want to transition to the final section because, like I said, uh, 64 Chess Podcast is sponsored by Aim Chess. And uh, I have this final section that I do at the end of every episode called um, Instant Insights, sponsored by Aim Chess. It's just a couple of rapid-fire questions. You know, you can answer as short or as long as you'd like for all of these. It's just, you know, eight questions. And uh, I don't know. Are you ready to enter the Aim Chess Instant Insights uh Chamber. I'm not, I, I'm a nuance guy, so I'm not great at short answer, but let's give it a shot. <laughs> uh, nuance is, is welcome. So this is uh, Instant Insights sponsored by AimChess, and you can use code David30 to get 30% off your first month with AimChess. So please check that out. It supports the podcast. It would help me a lot. So all that being said, question one. Um, There's a lot of debate over this actually um, recently, but do you prefer knights or bishops? Knights. Really? So you don't believe in the bishop pair? I mean, the bishop pair is great. Uh, <laughs> nuance, right? Nuance. <laughs> you got me there immediately. Yeah. But as an individual piece, knights are just... There's there's nothing more fun than a good knight fork. Yeah, of course. Um, Definitely. I don't, I'm not necessarily saying knights are better than bishops on the board, I, but I prefer knights. Sure. Um, question two, and again, this is, I ask it specifically like this. You can interpret this any way you want. Carlson or Nepo? Carlson. 
81.5% of the time. Right. <laughs> some people, some people interpret this as like, uh, who are, who are you rooting for as opposed to, uh, you know, are you team Carlson or team Nepo? Uh, I guess that's how I originally meant it, but from a rooting perspective, I generally do like to see upsets and I generally do prefer underdogs, but I would rather not see Magnus in the candidates. I want Magnus to be waiting there if Ferruja wins the candidates. That's how so I feel exactly. exactly. This particular match is one of the rare times where the favorite winning this match sets up a narrative that I'm actually more interested in. So I would go Magnus from a rooting interest as well for that reason, but it would be super exciting to right. see a new champion. Right. Um, okay. Next. What's your favorite place where you've played chess? Uh, Newport, the tournament out there I went to that twice in Rhode Island, uh, Newport, Oregon. It's uh, on the Oregon oh, coast. I see. Um, I've, Never played chess outside of Oregon yet, though I have oh. plans to. I haven't actually played over the board since 2014, but I've been working quite a bit on my game online, and I'm hoping to, by next spring, be able to play some tournaments and potentially start doing some travel for chess and some chess tourism. Uh, so I, that answer may change when I get to leave the state, but right. so far, the uh, Newport is an awesome place. Right. Uh, question four, who is your favorite chess player of all time? It seems premature to say Alireza Ferruja. He's only 18. Um, he, he's not an all-time yet, but I don't have another answer. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. That's awesome. Um, number five, what's the most memorable tournament you've ever played? Played? Uh, that was the Portland Open or the Oregon Open in Portland I where I had my biggest ratings game in any one event. And, um, I haven't played that many tournaments though. Yeah, well, me either. <laughs> but I actually, um, I'd, maybe this is a nice other question to ask maybe for, but uh, what's the, <coughs> wait, sorry. What's the most memorable tournament you've ever watched? Maybe it's another good one to ask. Uh, Synquefield Cup 2014. We brought up Fabi seven in a row earlier, and the recency bias and my love of Ferruja has me wanting to talk about what just happened this month. But this was all still prologue, I think. If Ferruja wins the candidates, that could potentially be the new answer, but. I don't remember anything else from so long ago remotely as clearly as that absurd run from Fabi. I think right. that's a hard one to top for most memorable. I think also with Fabi's run, it's not even that, you know, it's, it's the people he beat too. Which right. It's not just that it was seven out of seven. It's like, I was thinking about it when Ferruja hit six and a half out of seven on board one at the team championships. And it's like, that's an amazing run. Oh, wait, it's still half a point weaker than Fabi did against the literal best other players yeah. in the world. Yeah. Seven out of seven in that. Cause that was the strongest field that had ever been assembled for a tournament at that time. Right. I'm not sure if that's been broken since or not. I don't think but so. It was, it was very specifically built. They did a better job that round than in any other top tournament of getting the top players. No token 
27 20 or whatever token 27 <laughs> like look you have to turn scrub. Earth, like look the... at this scrub number you know oh yeah we we got you know numbers <laughs> one two three four six seven and then we got uh you know we get uh veselin to paul over there oh what then, a oh, terrible the tournament. 20th yeah <laughs> but they didn't but as i think it was literally it one through eight that. yeah it was like like one through ten or something whatever it was like it literally was the... like um I think it was six of the top seven, maybe, because it was yeah. a, because he won seven in a row, but it was a ten round tournament, double round robin, so there would have been six players, but I think all six of them were in top seven or eight, right? And he just beat them all. He beat every single one of them in the first half of the round robin, and so comes sick. out and wins two more games in the second half. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Um, only a few more questions. First of all, like, um, what's your favorite game that you've played? I don't know if you have anything in like a database somewhere because I know you said you're like a club player, but I don't know if you have some just some memorable. No, no. Okay, my favorite game I ever played was in my very first tournament. Um, uh, I was 17 years old. The first time I played tournament chess, uh, I'd been a playing. Ch- my dad taught me the rules when I was five. Uh, I inherited a whole bunch of books from my grandpa when he passed away when I was seven, mm-hmm. and I just played chess at home read my chess books until I was 17. Uh, and then my dad got me a membership in the United States Chess Federation. And I realized, looked at the tournament ads in the back and there was one in my town and I went to it and didn't do great. But I had one game that I won against a much higher rated player that got published in Northwest Chess Magazine. And... Uh, one of the local masters who does the annotation annotated it and my opponent just straight up gave blunder to piece, but then I converted and it was impressive enough to convert given the rating difference. And he wrote excellent use of pawns in the annotation. And I will never not be proud of my excellent use of pawns as I converted that piece up position against the 1600. That's a, that's a good, that's a great, uh, great compliment to get on your, on your chest too, when you're at this level too, because you know, uh, we'd be moving our pawns everywhere and nowhere at the same time. So I've had plenty of bad use of pawns in plenty of games since. But, but, in but we that don't talk game, about those, yeah. We don't talk about those. That's my favorite. Excellent use of pawns, according to Chuck Shulian. Shout out Chuck Shulian. Yes. Uh, two, just two more. First of all, um, and I, I, the kebab place closes in half an hour, so I, I, I want to wrap. I it won't up keep so you. I can, yeah, uh, but that's first, critical. Yeah, very critical. I just felt like the podcast had to know um, that. Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, what's your favorite game by somebody else? If there's a memorable game that you have that's just like in your heart. I don't know if I actually have one. That's fine. Um, Anderson's Immortal is. Yeah. It's a great one. Something that was maybe the first just absurdly good classic game. Uh, one of those books I inherited from my grandpa was right. called The Golden Treasury of Chess, and that was the one I went over over and over again when I found it. Real treasury, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. And then the last question is um your favorite opening? Uh two knights defense in the Italian with the with knight g5. It's the only opening I play both sides of. So you you know you welcome the fried liver with uh, open arms. If I mean it's I'll play knight takes f seven, 
but it's not, those aren't the, the fried liver lines aren't really what make me enjoy it. It's the just absolute chaos on the board where yeah. like, there's a lot of openings where one side sacks a pawn for the initiative. And as far as I'm concerned, that opening is you sack a pawn for double initiative, but your opponent also has initiative. Yeah. <laughs> it's very chaotic. And it's, I don't understand any of it ever. And I love it every time, <laughs> uh, regardless of which side, right. which, which pieces I have. So. Yeah, maybe we got to look at some some Feruza fried liver games. I don't know if he has played that recently, but <laughs> probably not so much yeah. recently. Yeah. He's been playing a lot of Italian, but um, everybody's playing the Italian lately. It, it, it's cool seeing it be so popular these days. Yeah. Uh, it, was the, it was the creme de la creme in the in all the ancients. Uh, not the, sorry, in all of the um, the meltwater events this year, everybody was basically playing the, the Italian uh, with e four e five. That was pretty cool. All the critical games. I think also in, even in the final, there was a lot of Italian games. I don't even play the Italian anymore, but I, I, it was really fun to see a lot of these ideas that you know club players go, go for. When I was 17, 18 years old and just starting to you know play ter- competitive chess, I had a lot of people tell me, you know, if you want to be a real chess player, you're going to have to switch from the Italian to the real Lopez at some point. And I resisted it and I stuck with the Italian and I'm finally being vindicated by right. the current meta. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Although I think the current meta in part is because of this, uh, you know, the Rajrabovs of the world. That I too. mean, <laughs> I'm not trying to not trying to rag on. I, I think a lot of the, like we said before, a lot of the, the narratives about Timor and I think is really like overstated and kind of just looking for. These, yes. Kind of not overstated there. narratives, I think, became a theme of this uh, show. Yeah, I think <laughs> there's a lot of them out there. Because you know we're we're we do math and we know that uh, nothing is really black and white except for the chess pieces. You know, it's all yes. there's there's a lot there's a lot more going on, and uh, I think it's it's fair to give everybody a chance, and it's 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 important to let everybody shine. And so, um, yeah, I hope there's not too much naysaying about Ferruja. Like with the, I already seen some replies that oh, well, twenty eight hundred is like uh, they have rating inflation, blah blah blah. Like, shut up. <laughs> why do you have, like? Why do people have to do that? But it's just the internet, I suppose, right? So. It's you got to say you feel like you got to say something and you don't have anything to say. So you say that, I guess. Exactly. Well, this was a pleasure. I, I think this is the longest episode I've ever done. So I, I had a blast. Um, I hope uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this, too. How can how can my listeners uh, support you? I guess. Um, follow me on Twitter and read my blog. Uh, definitely, if you want to follow what I what I publish, you want to be on both. Um, I do a lot of stuff only that's Twitter only. Anything that's like little snippets that doesn't, I don't need a few, a thousand words to, to cover. So there's a lot of things that are, a lot of analysis that is exclusive on Twitter. And then my deeper dives show up on the blog. So follow uh, chess numbers at wordpress.com. Follow me on Twitter at chess numbers. And I mean, I just, I just do this because I enjoy answering questions that seem interesting to me and I keep doing it because right. people tell me that they appreciate what I'm putting out there. I do have a PayPal link on there. I certainly welcome donations. It helps give me a stronger way to convince my wife that it's worth spending this much time writing my chess blog, Right. but I've never really tried to monetize it and I don't in particularly plan to. I just... We'll keep writing about what I find interesting, and that's Jess. So, yeah, the best way to support is just follow me where I put out my content and share it with other people that you think might be interested and seeing page views and 
Twitter likes and all that certainly feeds my ego and I appreciate it. It's, and really it's just great to know that other people appreciate the work that it's worth putting in the hours. Well, I can tell you that, uh, that you've, you've fueled a lot of the discussion on this podcast, a lot of the narratives. I've, I've just kind of looked at your Excel spreadsheets and been like, okay, I, 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 you could see the storyline right then and there. So I, I really thank you. And uh, I wish you all the best with this uh, upcoming work that you're going to do. I will be watching very closely. And uh, I hope we do this again. I really hope thank so. Thank you. Yeah, this was a blast. I had a great time. And uh, until then, uh, I want to thank my listeners once again for listening to 64 Chess Podcast. Um, I'll probably, I don't know if I'm going to record an episode over the World Championship, although I decided if I will, I probably won't talk much about the World Championship. I'll try to do something a little fun. Um, but stay tuned. Watch the World Championship. Uh, follow me on Twitter at 64podcast. I'll be doing some some game recaps there. I'll be doing some memes, you know, trying to grow my presence on Twitter a little bit. So stay tuned for that. And uh, I guess I'll see you guys uh, soon. So thanks for listening. <laughs>